Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. All right, we begin a series that kind of began last week. Uh, Today we get into the meat of it, uh, entitled um, The Long Way Home. Now, uh, just a quick refresher for those of you that may have not been here or trying to catch up on the stream at one point in time or another. Um, We had last week talked about uh, the beginning of the of the exodus and what was taking place with these people that were in slavery for over 400 years of time and how when Moses comes to them and, and tries to draw them away to renew the Sabbath, to renew worship to God and, and Pharaoh's response to that was to have them make uh, bricks without straw which meant um, more to do with less resources. How we, for the first time, see the name Yahweh. Prior to that, he had been, God had been known as the Almighty One and powerful. But now he gives that personal name, Yahweh, I am. And here's a little quick clue for you if you're studying Scripture, is anywhere you see in, in a Bible, for the most part, you see Lord spelled with a capital L, lowercase, O-R-D. That generally means Adonai, or it means um, like a, a master type thing, or, or exalted one. Um, but if you see uh, Lord all capped, L-O-R-D, all in caps, that's a stand-in for Yahweh. That's a stand-in for this very personal expression of who God is. So at one time, Israel had known him through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as this all-powerful, almighty God. But through Moses and, and the experience they're about to go into, they're going to enter into a whole new level of intimacy a whole new level of consideration. Um, I talked a little bit about uh, the whole uh, bricks without straw thing, and I was a little surprised how many of you did not know that phrase. Uh, Maybe I caught you by surprise, maybe you didn't know the context of it, but it's kind of an important one, and there's other ones we're going to point out as we go along here that I want you over the couple of weeks to come to have an understanding of of some, some key phrases that used to be very much a part of our culture. Fifty years ago, if you'd said bricks without straw, everyone in in the gathering would know, and even in popular culture would understand that. And so I want to try to expand your understanding of that. Now, we're going to skip over a bunch of stuff that's kind of already been covered, all main kind stuff, and so, um, uh, you know, kind of like things like the the ten plagues, and I want to make sure I get that right. It's ten plagues, not ten commandments. They're two very different things, okay? And so with these ten plagues, um, they were designed to attack and to uh, show God's dominance against the various gods of Egypt. And I won't go through this right now, but each plague targets a particular god of Egypt. The Nile was viewed as a god. And so when it turns to blood, it's showing that there's a dysfunctionality with that god, that somehow God has dominance. Now, the greatest one of those um, would have been considered Pharaoh himself, or not the greatest, but one of them. He was considered a divine being. 
And he was one who was the protector of his people. There was also a, a goddess who was responsible for protecting children. And so when you have um, uh, the last one being the children, the, the eldest being killed, it showed God's dominance over Pharaoh that he can't protect his own people and it showed his dominance over uh, this goddess who was supposed to protect children. So each of these ten plagues go to that issue. Now here's another sub-point that's interesting. Of the ten plagues, nine of them, have the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, get a pass on just by being Jewish. Just by their ethnicity. They don't get plagued by them. The tenth one, though, the one that causes death, the only way they get a pass is if they take an active step of faith to be included in this critical one where death passes over them. The angel of death passes over. A lamb has to be slaughtered. The blood has to be spread over the doorposts of their house in order for the angel of death to pass over. So nine, just by identification. But the tenth one, the most critical one, the, the, the life or death one, required an active step of faith on their part. And this particular one is so critical and marked so specifically that when we go into Exodus chapter 12, for example, um, it says, obey these instructions about how to keep this ceremony in the future, this, this Passover meal that involved lamb and bitter herbs and, and uh, um, unleavened bread, uh, that eventually Jesus gives its full meaning to, showing that he's the Lamb of God, sacrificed. And so at the Passover meal, he uh, institutes the, at the Last Supper, communion or Eucharist. But at this point in time, they're told in ch chapter 12, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. In other words, you're supposed to practice this every year as a reminder. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, in other words, the promised land, observe this ceremony. Don't forget. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you and to this day, in Jewish households, when a Seder or a Passover meal is held, um, then the youngest person present, usually it's a child, but let's say it's a bunch of 50-year-olds, and one person's 30 years old, and then the youngest person, the 30-year-old, would ask this question, why is this night different from all other nights? And this kind of goes back to here in this passage when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Why is this night different than other nights? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians and the people bowed down and worshiped. And so the 10 plagues, we're kind of slipping past real fast. The Passover meal, we're going past uh, very quickly, but eventually becomes communion. Uh, the Exodus takes place, depending on the dating, between 1400 B.C. or 1300 B.C. So for 13 or 1400 years, the Jewish people practice the remembrance of that last plague's passing over them, and it eventually becomes communion. And so 13, 1400 years pass, and then Jesus says, this is what this is really about. Now, um, there is a, a, a movie and I, I want to talk about that really quickly. Uh, it's entitled uh, Egypt, Gods and Kings. And I'm just curious, how many of you saw this movie at all? Any of you? It, it didn't do well at the box office, which is a really great thing because it's a stupid movie, okay? <laughs> this is a movie about the Exodus, 
allegedly, okay? Um, but it has a whole bunch of weird things in it. It's got God showing up as a small little child who talks to Moses while everyone sees him talking to a rock. But somehow he sees this little child. It has him near the end of the film in a carriage um, riding along as an old man with the Ark of the Covenant, which he gently and thoughtfully puts his hand upon, which is if you know anything about Scripture, if you touch the Ark, you die. Now, let me save you some trouble. If in the future you encounter the Ark of the Covenant, do not touch it. You will die. All right? And so it's got all sorts of things like that. It's got Moses as this warrior, as you can see from up here. He defied an empire and changed the world. Well, he in a way defied an empire, but he didn't change the world. God did through him. And it wasn't through the insurrection and rebellions of violence that they show in the film. It was through um, God working through a man that was actually timid in many ways. Now here's the ironic thing. Um, and here's the, another thing. Please don't get your theology from movies or from television shows. Please, I'm begging of you, don't do that. Because you could view this and think you know something about the Exodus and you would be very confused and misled by it. Um, you could watch a series that was done not too long ago on the Bible that was done by people who, who are Christians, at least that's their claimed allegiance. And and yet, it was so messed up in so many different ways. The thing that drove me nuts, probably not the worst, but one of them, was, was in Sodom and Gomorrah, and suddenly ninja angels show up. There were no ninja angels. So don't take your theology, don't take your understanding of Scripture from a movie or a television show. I don't want to be a, a, a raw about this, but... Read it. Read it. Know these phrases and these words and, and let them work inside your heart and inside your mind. Okay, so if we're not letting culture shape our view, then, then let's look at what actually took place. All right? Um, Exodus chapter 13. Let's begin there because we're bypassing all the other crazy, wild, incredible stuff of plagues and everything else, and we're getting right down to it. When the last thing happens, then Pharaoh finally says, you know, Moses says, let my people go, and Jesus says, let the people go. Or I mean, Pharaoh says, let the people go. And in this section it says, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. Now, the Philistines lived in a section that's in current Tel Aviv, Israel, to the Gaza Strip. In fact, the term Palestine is drawn from Philistia, or the Philistine people. And so that's where the term Palestine actually comes from. And so there's this short route from Egypt straight up there. And this scripture says God didn't leave them, even though that's their target where they're going to. They're leaving everything they have known, their home as it is, and they're going on a journey to a new home and a new identity and understanding of reality. And it says God didn't lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. I'm not going to ask how many, how many wives whose husbands have been driving, refusing to ask directions, took the long way instead of the short route. We're trying not to be divisive this morning. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. The Philistines were very warlike. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. So he doesn't take the shortcut. They're going to their new home, but 
they're going to take the long way home. Now, there's a couple of reasons. One is given clearly here. If these bunch of, of slaves for 400 years, these tribal people, these beaten down people with no organization, no structure, no uh, um, training of any kind, suddenly bump up against these well-trained, violent warriors, they would be defeated. Or they would be discouraged and they would reel from it. In addition to that, um, there were a series of Egyptian forts along that entire way because that particular section from Israel into Egypt has been known as one of the all-time most common invasion routes in the entire world. Egypt would go up to hit people, Syrians and, and Babylonians, other ones would come down to hit them, and so it was a very violent stretch in that way. They would have encountered all sorts of things if they'd gone that route. So when God, instead of the short one, takes them this long way, and, and for a deeper reason as well, too, as he has them take the road, the road less traveled. And uh, from Robert Frost, my favorite poem in Parvis, because nobody else wants to take this road. There's a quick, simple answer to every solution that is almost invariably wrong. And we want the short, quick way to spiritual maturity. We want the short, quick way to resolve whatever the issues are that we're dealing with. And God rarely provides that. Often oftentimes, he takes us on this much longer, far more interesting, and far more difficult journey. Not the quick road, but this long one that often, as it does for these people, the desert road the desert road, where we become entirely and utterly and completely dependent upon him. Now, here's a phrase that I, I, I'm going to ask you, and be honest with me, because you're in church, and those that are in live stream, you're still in church, and God will strike you down if you lie about this, all right? So, how many of you have heard the phrase pillar of cloud or pillar of fire? Okay. A lot of you have heard that, um, probably because you saw the Ten Commandments movie or something else, hopefully because you actually read it in the Bible. And so we're going to look at this because this is really important. In chapter 13, verse 21, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. And the pillar of fire is particularly interesting because God seems to inhabit that in some way. Um, we're told at Pentecost that, that, that when the Holy Spirit uh, uh, comes upon people that it's like tongues of flame. And so this is some actual presence of God. This is incredible. These people are now being led out of, out of bondage, but the literal presence of God in some manifestational form is there. Wouldn't it be cool if every morning we showed up here for worship and there was a pillar of fire, well, probably be a, we'd have to put a hole in the roof, but if there was a pillar of fire right here and there was some tangible expression, we have uh, a candle that we keep lit uh, on a permanent basis. It never, ever goes out. It's the same candle. It's been burning for 40 years. I mean, it's, it's, no, it's, it's one we replace. We have it in there uh, just to represent something of the uh, presence of God. But in their case, there's actually a presence, fire, cloud. Now, I'm going to take a little sidetrack here for a minute, a little bit, and I apologize to anybody who's from Florida um, at all. I hate Florida. <laughs> I absolutely hate Florida. 
It is muggy, it is hot, it's got mosquitoes, it's got alligators. Um, I went to college here for two years, and it was like in the middle of the state in Lakeland, and um, there were just orange groves everywhere, nothing else to do. And if we wanted to go to Tampa, there was only a road that was just a two-lane road. And the state symbol for Florida is basically uh, um, sunglasses with a hat and just a, a grip on a steering wheel, and that's all you see. And you can't get around it. And I, I just, I, I, I never have liked Florida. Until a couple of years ago, I was at a wedding. And it was on the Gulf Coast, a little further down, Fort Myers, uh, a place called Captiva in Sanibel Island. And when I had some space by myself, I went out on the, on the coast there, and it's a completely different thing than the Deltona side or, or the built-up cities or anything else like that. And, and the water was still and, and beautiful, and the sunsets were amazing. And there would be these clouds that would stack up. I mean, just like a pillar of cloud. And it was beautiful. And I look at that, and I think, man, that's what these people would have seen this stacked pillar of clouds that would have led them where they are now feeling the actual presence of God through his Holy Spirit. That's amazing. Okay, but here's the thing. As they go along with that, um, Pharaoh suddenly wakes up and realizes the economic impact of having all these slaves gone. And so he begins to pursue them with chariots and horses and, and everything else and coming at them. And so in Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, it says, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified. And they cried out to the Lord, which is better than what they did before, while yelling at Moses, and then Moses talks to God. And I suggested then you just bypass the middleman and just talk to him directly. And so they do that. At first, they cry out to the Lord. But they don't like the answer they're getting or they're not hearing something properly on it. So then they go to the leader and to Moses and they begin to yell, him, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say uh, to, leave, to in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. This is a refrain that we will hear throughout this journey. There's a reason why they are called the children of Israel. Are we there yet? He's picking on me. I didn't get enough to eat. And we see this refrain throughout this journey. So let's take a look at this passage quickly. The Egyptians marching after them. They feel trapped. They're on the edge of the water, by the water. They see these, this army of trouble coming at them. And they're terrified. I don't know what your trouble is. I don't know the soldiers that that seem to be pursuing you. We all have different things by which we can feel trapped during this season of time. Locked up in our homes or limited children that never leave the house. A spouse who is working at home and never leaves the house. Marriages that that could have survived for another 30 years until one of them retired and they had to face that situation or facing it now. Whatever the circumstance that we feel trapped and we see this army of trouble, this Egyptian problem coming at us that terrifies us. And our tendency is to cry out to God but not listen for a response. 
And when that doesn't work, to yell at whoever is nearby us that seems to be in some role of responsibility. Whether it's our spouse, a boss, church leaders, whoever it might be. The cop that pulls us over and suddenly gets an explosion of our anger and attitude. The clerk at the checkout. Exodus chapter 14 goes on, though, in 13 and 14. And Moses answers the people, and this whole passage is really critical here. He first says, don't be afraid. The first thing we need to do is manage our fear. We manage all imaginations, all sorts of things that lock us up. Don't be afraid. The next thing he said is, stand firm. More battles have been lost by sheer panic than any other logistical issue. In the first battle of Bull Run, uh, the first battle of the Civil War, American Civil War, the Union thought it was going to be a cakewalk against the Confederate forces for a number of reasons, first of which they had a massive army, several times the size of what was facing them. They went into it thinking it was a picnic. People literally came out in carriages and and had picnic dinners overlooking the battle thinking this was going to be something interesting to see. But the Confederates, despite the massive force coming against them, didn't give ground. They stood. This is where Stonewall Jackson got his name. He stood like a stone wall. And as a result of it, panic began to filter through the front portions of the troops as they weren't making any headway. And they started to turn and, and hesitate. And then they began to run. And so even though they had far more massive forces... Eventually, the entire Union uh, army turned around and ran and lost the battle because one group stood firm and panic entered into them. And so Moses is saying, in the Spirit of God, don't be afraid. Stand firm. And you'll see the deliverance the Lord's going to bring you today. And I'd say the same thing to you today. Don't be afraid whatever army of trouble seems to be coming at you. Whatever situation you feel trapped by, stand firm and you'll see the deliverance of the Lord. He goes on to make a statement here that to me is is just really cool. He says, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. These troubles coming your way, you're never going to see them again. The troubles that we're facing during this time, guys, there are unique situations right now going on that we will never see again. It is for a season of time, and then that will be done and over with. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. And these troubles will go away. And then these next two lines. The Lord will fight for you. Think of that. The Lord will fight for you. You know, you have these wrestling matches and these MMA things where where there's two in there and you can tag out and someone else jumps in. When I was in college, we had these massive snowball fights and I could look outside my window against residence halls and I I could see literally 100 people on one side and 100 people on the other side. And one of the determining features for me besides my joy of battle was, was to see one person I was trying to see from our hall if he was out on the field that day. His name was Herman. Herman was six foot eight, 200,000 pounds. He was the size of a small tank. I would throw a snowball at another person and they'd, oh, bounced off and that's what. He would get up like an avalanche, throw it and knock someone off their feet with every throw. When I saw Herman was out there, Herman was on our side, I got out on the field. <laughs> you need to understand, God is on your side. You can get out on the field. 
This is what Moses is saying in this situation. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. You're going to see deliverance. The troubles you see today, you're never going to see again. The Lord will fight for you. You just have to show up. In fact, he says you need only to be still. In other words, just don't run. Don't panic. Stand firm and be still. Everybody, you can all, we can all do this because basically it means that you just do nothing. All of us, some of us, that's all we do is nothing. Just do it in faith. Stand firm. Don't be afraid. And then just stand still. Just be there. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And so they're seeing all this happening. They're seeing everything coming at them. And um, uh, this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's the favorite of an uh, Israeli Defense Force major that I'm friends with. He loves this passage, and he's not a Christian. Um, and I, I, I think he does believe in God. Um, and, but he loves this passage because Moses is, is, is praying or, or crying out to God then after he's discussed things with the people, and evidently the Lord had already given him some instructions. So when the Lord said in verse four, 15, why are you crying out to me? This is the only time you're going to see this in Scripture where God says, why are you praying? Basically, stop. Tell the Israelites to move on. In other words, there's a time for prayer, and there's a time to get it done. And this was a time to get it done. And so, uh, in the next one, he says, look, in case you forgot what I told you earlier in private, let's make it public. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that everyone can go through. Reach out your hand in faith. There's times that you have to reach out your hand in faith. Now, right after this instruction, quickly moving on, verse 19 says, the angel of God has been traveling in front of Israel's army, who had been traveling in front, went behind them. The pillar of cloud was moved from in front and stood behind them. So there's this pillar of cloud, like Sanibel Island, and all that stuff that's just stacked up in front that's the presence of God that's in front leading them. But now with the Egyptians closing in, this shifts to behind them to stand between them and the army. And it says this interesting phrase, the angel of God. Now here's another interesting point. We believe in the Trinity. We believe that God is made up of a community, all one, but a unique community that's so close and intimate that it also calls us into intimacy, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if this is the truth, then in the Old Testament, you're going to find expressions, and we do of the Father, we do of the Spirit, and you also do of the Son. You also see Jesus Christ. Most theologians agree that almost every place that you see the angel of the, of the Lord or angel of God, that it's what's called a, listen close, a pre-incarnate existence of Christ. Pre-incarnate, pre-flesh, before he's in the flesh and walks the earth. That there's something unique of the presence of God in this angel of God. So Jesus is here. The presence of God is there and it, and it shields them from the trouble. And it says in the next verse, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel and throughout the night the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other. So the, the Egyptians are trying to get in but there's this dark cloud, there's maybe lightning and storming, something else they can't see, they're shielding in some way and trying to work their way through slowly now through what's going on. On the other side though, God provides light. He provides light and clarity. And then in the 21st, we see the main event happen. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night, the Lord drove the sea back, and the waters were divided and separated. 
stretches forth his hand. When all the troubles come, when all the fears close in, when, when all these things happen and we seem trapped, there's times you need to extend your hand in faith and praise. There's times that you need to reach out and accept what God has for you in faith believing that there's a provision that is going to be made and provided for. When we look at um, each of these situations, um, these people who are on this journey are often referred to as the children of Israel. And there's two reasons for this. They were descended from Abraham, who had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who struggles with God and is renamed Israel. And so they're now known as the children of Israel. But there's another reason, I think, that they were named that, a deeper element. Because they were immature in their faith. They were like little children. God had taken them from their homes. Their situation, their past has been eradicated. Now they are completely dependent upon him, but they were disorganized. They're not structured. They, they aren't even capable of making really their own decisions. They're so dependent upon Moses. And God's going to take them on a journey, even as he's going to take us on a journey over the next couple of weeks' time or so, to develop their faith, to mature their sense of organization, their sense of identity as a nation, their, their sense of people following after God to make adults out of them capable of making decisions that are proper and clear until they eventually come and they're able to then face those enemies in that land, conquer them. They go from slaves over a season of time to becoming warriors that conquer the entire land. They establish the nation of Israel for 15, 1400 years or so this nation stands and pursues God off and on with differing success. In 73 AD it ceases to become a nation. Listen to this interesting issue. In 73 A.D., they ceased to become a nation as the Romans um, wipe out their rebellion. In 1948, almost 2,000 years later, these people come back to the same place, establish the same religion, the same culture, the same language 2,000 years later. No other nation on the planet has ever done that. Why? Listen to me. No other nation has ever come back like that. There is something unique. There is something special in regards to Israel. And the desert experience, the thing that they walked through in this whole thing, uh, this God who showed up to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as, as the Almighty now becomes intimate, personal, walks with them, engages them in some way, and, 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 and reveals himself to them. Their past is done. They're now on a journey. Not a short one. They're going to a new home. But with all respect to Supertramp and no reference to their song whatsoever, they're going to take the long way home. They're going to be developed. The rough edges will be sawn off. The weaknesses will be weeded out. And there's going to be a strength and something new established with these gathering of slaves. I don't know what Egyptian or what troubles 
have shown up on your doorstep in this season? What fears or pressures have come upon your marriages, your jobs, your mind, your emotions? But God knows these things. And the most powerful thing about Yahweh, about our God, is that he's present with us. He makes a covenant. Of all the plagues, except that last one, it was just an identity issue, but that last one, they had to step out in faith. That last one required a sacrifice of blood. That last one pointed to Christ, God in the flesh, who would come and die for us and take our sins upon us. In this season where our normal is gone and we're on a journey to a new normal, a new home, I want to encourage you to lean into God, not away. The people of Israel eventually came together as a people. There was a lot of grumbling, there's a lot of immaturity, and we're going to see that. But they grew during this time, even as we can. And my prayer that as we move forward is that we not only learn more about the character of God, but something about our character gets shaped and transformed that something of our dependency and encouragement of one another, even if it's just going to be an elbow in the morning. Finally, this. As we go on to the 15th verse, and I won't read the verse to you as a whole, the chapter as a whole, but they've, they've come out on the other end. The Egyptians have been vanquished. They're, they're free. They're clear. They're, they're, they're standing tall. God's presence walks with them. Miracles have been done. Um, all of it is exultant. Then they begin to sing a song. In verse 15, chapter 15, verses 1 and 3, it says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song, and actually the firm Israelites is children of Israel, sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense, and he's become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. He's a Herman. Lord is his name, Yahweh. This is the oldest recorded song that we have of history is the oldest recorded song. And it's a song of victory, and it goes on for many more verses beyond that. But it's a song of victory. It's a song of exaltation. It's a people who stood firm, didn't get overcome by fear. It's people who stepped back and let God win the battle, and they stood still in the midst of it all. It's people who stretched out their hands in faith and received what God had. It's people who left slavery and bondage and all they knew behind to embark to a place they did not know, but God kept his promises. Music is a significant part of what we see in Israel's worship. It's always been a significant part of Christian worship and who we've been as a church. This victory song that was sung by Moses, this point of exaltation, all fears gone, all issues resolved, now on the precipice of an incredible journey that was going to see great victory further on and miracles and some significant defeats and challenges. But for now, for this one moment of time, the enemy is gone. We're with God. And they exalted him. 
It's not the shortest route, it's the long way home. And it's difficult. It's a desert route. It's one that requires us to be completely dependent upon God. But His presence is there in the midst of it. And at the end of it, we'll no longer be children. We'll be warriors ready to take the land. So, whatever army of troubles come against you, whatever trap you feel you are in, stand firm. Be still. And know your God. And that he fights for you. Father, I pray that you would continue to direct us going forward and shape us as a people in a church. Lord, I pray that this would be a time of refinement. That all the dross and all the ugly stuff would be weeded out of us in these months to come. That when this whole thing is done, that your church would stand forth gleaming like fine silver. Shape us during this time, Lord. Strengthen us and encourage us. And let us encourage one another and be cautious and, and protective of our unity, I pray. We lift up our nation to you. We lift up this country. And we pray that you'd guide us all. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name.